Okay. Okay, so. Thank you for listening to Disaster Tales Podcast. Our website, www.disastertales.com, is available for you to look at and to gain information about Disaster Tales. <laughs> Support for our, our Disaster Tales podcast comes from you, our listeners. If you check out our website, you'll find a link, or you can go and support us at Patreon or Patreon. Patreon. Or- <laughs> check out our website at www.disastertales.com. You'll find a link there where you can become a member, and it will take you to our Patreon page where you can support the COP podcast. Yeah. Give yeah. Us extra <laughs> like a girdle you are a financial girdle that we wear like a push-up bra we need that support or be an athletic supporter at our patreon site patreon. Mem- patreon when you become a member of patreon that'll give you access to extra content things like photos and graphs and personal stories Sacred and- decoder rings who knows what else you might find there? <laughs> Instructions on how to catch a skunk. <laughs> Training your passenger pigeon. And keeping your snail wet. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to go there. <laughs> if you have any suggestions for subjects, we would welcome them. Also, if you have a personal disaster story that you'd like to share with us, we would be honored to be able to share that. We'll be posting a new episode on the 15th of every month. That's right. (laughs) So thank you for supporting Disaster Tales, because it's a disaster. (laughs) We we have Americans listening to this, and we have Australians listening to this. So if you want to support us from down under, we could appreciate the support. (laughs) Just check a snail on the barbie. This is Disaster Tales. Hi, I'm Kate Fairweather. My co-host today is Barb Lonsky. Today, we're going to be talking about two industrial fires that changed the American workplace. At the turn of the 19th century, leaders began to think more progressively about all groups of people and people in cities particularly. That's right. They believed that cleaner cities made better citizens, which actually does make some sense because cleaner cities means less disease. In the poorer sections of New York City, particularly, where there were five and six story tenement houses, buildings that were just filled with trash, and they had dirty mattresses and garbage and broken stone streets. And it was a, you know, I think about how depressing that must have been to go back home to something that looked like that. It was hard to take any kind of pride in your residence or your your home when it was a dump. Well, and not only that, how can you clean it if you can't afford soap? Mm -hmm. You know, you can't even clean yourself. Right. The progressives had passed a series of three tenement acts, which made living there cleaner, more safe. They made made it a law that every room had to have a window. And then when they started making those windows on the inside of the building into open stairways, they passed another law that said, no, they have to actually face the outside. And they put in air shafts for ventilation, which people started throwing trash into. So then they had to, the next law came out and said, instead of ventilation shafts, 
you'd have to build it with a courtyard where people will take their garbage out into the courtyard and it could be taken away. And the Tenement Act of 1901, it banned the construction of dark, ventilated tenement buildings in the state of New York. So it wasn't only in New York City, but it was statewide. The requirements were an indoor toilet, one for every two families, which can be interesting, I'm sure. Big improvement. Yeah, but it's a big improvement yeah. over everybody using the same outhouse. True. Open courtyards, proper ventilation systems, fire safeguards. It required the courtyard design so that the garbage could be removed. Each window had to face a source of light and outdoor air in order for it to be a window that was, met the code. A minimum space outside each window because the windows were, had needed to be accessible for cleaning. The uh, required public spaces inside the building to be lit with natural light through windows or artificial light powered by gas or electricity or skylights. So it really made things a lot more healthy for the people because there was fresh air movement, there was sunshine. It was a more pleasant place to live, obviously, if there was light. It was also more healthy and you could air out your room so it helped be cleaner in the suites and then the families would be healthier and happier. And when you're talking about work, then absenteeism is down because people aren't out sick. Right. So the, the suffrage movement and uh, among the women trying to gain the right to vote and to have equal rights underneath the, under the law and a lot of labor unrest because of the conditions of the factories and the way that uh, management just exploited and pretty much enslaved the people who worked for them really brought a lot of uh, unrest and a lot of discontent among the people who were working in these factories. And a lot of them even they had tenements. The factories were in the tenements where the families were employed to, in, as, as slave labor to be able to produce a product. And they could never leave work because it was in their home. Right. The International Ladies Garment Workers Union had already started to push for reforms and things came to a head when a 20,000 member general strike was made against all the garment factories. Uh, they held out for some for weeks, some for months before the ownership finally came around and settled with them. It's interesting to note, too, that in that in the general strike where 20,000 people went out on strike, that those people gave up their wages to to exercise their rights in order to gain better working conditions for everyone. So these people who were living on two dollars a day now were out without any kind of income and their families suffered because of their stand for trying to, to get better working conditions and keep the factory owners responsible and accountable for the conditions that the people had to work in. That's right. But they lifted each other up and encouraged each other. And one by one, the factory owners caved and gave them the right to form a union and some other concessions like fireproof waste containers or bathrooms or hot and cold running water or extra staircases, the hours hours that they worked and working on Sundays and things like that. So one after another, these factories came into line with the unions. And the Triangle factory was the very last one to settle. And even when they did settle, the owners absolutely refused to permit them to form a union in the workplace. So they got most of what they wanted, but forming the union, which is really the most important one, 
so that you can act as one to get what you need from your employer. Uh, they weren't allowed to have that when they went back to work. So the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was the very last one to settle with its workers. That happened in December 1909. So can you describe the conditions in the factory? Describe the working conditions there. Well, the Triangle Factory, and we actually have, do have some drawings and photos of this. In the Triangle Factory on the ninth floor, there was eight tables that went from wall to wall. You could just barely walk around the edges. And the sewing machines were set along these tables, um, facing in different directions, alternating directions. So one to the right, one to the left, one to the right, one to the left. And the women were seated between these tables, and there was just barely enough room for them. And so you'd be sitting there sewing, and the two women on either side of you would be sewing from the table behind you. And then the next two women would be sew sewing on your table. And so people were, they were staggered, but they were... They weren't staggered with the room between them. They were staggered and they were knee to knee when they worked. So when you have a, a, a giant room like that and, and the tables are obstructions, the tables become obstructions if you need to get out in a hurry. And when people are crammed in there that tightly, it's, well, for one thing, it's hot. And for and for another thing, it's, it's noisy and it's dangerous. and. The women were being paid $2 a day, but they were also expected to pay for needles when they broke on the machines. And they were fined if they um, left to go to the restroom or if they were caught talking with one another in order to, in order to suppress the unions. And there was wicker baskets of fabric scraps that were just sitting next to these women in between the tables where they were supposed to walk to go to the restroom or leave the building or whatever. And there, there was also a tremendous amount of fiber and dust in the air. They had put down oil on the floors to keep the dust down, but when you're sewing that much and cutting that much, there's a lot of fiber that's suspended in the air. And so, of course, there was a lot of coughing going on because women were inhaling all of that. And so it was not a pleasant job, although working for the Triangle Factory was the best job in the city. It's crazy that those kind of conditions could be considered the best job in the city. It was the best garment worker job in the city. The pay was the best that they could get. Uh, there were windows, so you could actually see what you were doing. And so they considered that, they considered all those things the best that they could possibly find. The pay was good, the best. And you look at the work situations that people are in now and the, the way that their, uh, the, the workplaces are set up. And most of the things that we experience or we are blessed with in this country, as far as working conditions, are related to the fact that these people suffered the things that they did. And it created legislation that gave us the kind of conditions that we can work under now. Well, not only that we can work under, but we expect. We expect there to be fire exits marked with signs that say exit, that light up if the power goes down. We expect to be able to walk through a room and not trip over something. We expect to, as a matter of fact, since the Americans with Disabilities Act, we expect at a workplace for there to be room for a wheelchair to go anywhere that they need to go. So being crammed together like they were in the Triangle Factory is something we wouldn't even consider. It, 
nowadays. It's something that, right. you know, it's, you have to have room to get out and get in and go use the restroom or go to get a break or something like that. And, and you can't have flammable, dangerous materials around and you can't have you know, open fires and you can't, you, know, you can't smoke in a place like that. And, but those were, those things weren't illegal before these fires. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the Triangle Fire and how it, how it kind of played out. Uh, the Triangle Fire started on March 25th in 1911. The Ash Building, where the waste company was located, was a 10-story building and Triangle occupied the 8th, 9th, and 10th floor of that building. And it started because somebody who had been smoking a cigarette threw it into a pile of rag waste and it caught fire. So the people down on the 8th floor called the owners up on the 10th floor and said the place is on fire. And so everybody on the 10th floor evacuated. But nobody told people on the 9th floor that there was a fire. And so the fire came up very quickly through the stairwell. And the women were trapped were trapped on the ninth floor. Some of them escaped to the 10th floor. Most of the people on the eighth floor got out. But on the ninth floor, the women literally couldn't move to get out from behind their tables. And some of them managed to run to the elevator. And the elevator operator took as many as he could. He made four trips up and down, I think it was. Three or four, yeah. Some of them tried to grab the cable and, and go down to the cable or jump on top of the car and they may or may not have been successful, except for the fact that the push of people towards the elevator shaft actually pushed people into the shaft and they fell. They knocked the people who were on the cables off. And so 19 people died in the elevator shafts. 20 people died in the collapse of the fire escape. They had gone out onto the fire escape, which was not well attached to the building. And of course, the weight of all those people on it, it collapsed, it was bent, and and uh, the heat also had a, a part in that. So 20 plus people died in that event. 50 people were burned, just burned, uh, because they weren't able to get out of that, that building, burned to death. And then there was four that were unaccounted for, which may have been part of the fire escape collapse or maybe the elevator uh, situation. And a lot of women went to the windows to get away from the fire. And some of them jumped because they'd rather die from falling than catch fire and burn to death. There's a story of an engaged couple who actually came to the window and they hugged and kissed and then they hold, held hands and jumped out together. Some of the people that went out the windows didn't intend to go out the windows because the push of people behind them just kind of shoved them forward. And so they ended up having 53 people who jumped or fell from the windows. And one of those people survived for five days, but then her, her injuries were just too severe. And so she finally passed away on the 30th. And the fire department responded in the way that it should have, but there was a problem with water pressure and not having enough, but also the building was 10 stories tall and the ladders that the fire department had only reached to the sixth story. And so they couldn't get the ladders up and people in the crowd were saying, get the ladders, get the ladders but it was, they would only reach to the sixth story. So they weren't able to get the people out of the building. And then people who were jumping out of the building, the firemen had nets to catch them, but because of the velocity and the, the, the person coming in the fall, they weren't able to hold the nets and it were, they were ripped out of the, the firemen's hands and the people perished 
falling through. They said that many of the firemen had bleeding hands from they were trying to hold that net to catch those people who were jumping out of the window, but there was no no way that they could take that kind of force. That's right. Well, the velocity from that height, um, mm -hmm. basically 90 feet. 32 feet per second squared. That's, yeah, they're moving. That's <laughs> Mathematically, that's a heck of a lot. That's mm -hmm. what that is. Yeah. But some of the things that contributed to that fire, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory had a policy that they would check every woman's purse as she left to make sure she wasn't stealing a blouse, a, a shirtwaist. Now, any woman who would steal a shirtwaist and give up a job, that job that, she, that paid well, um, I, I just can't, I can't imagine any woman that was working there doing that. And they never did. They didn't catch anybody. But in order to check every single woman as she left, they locked one of the exits so they couldn't go out that way. And they had to go by the guy that was checking the bags. So when the fire started, some of them went to one, one of the stairways that was open. And some of them went to the one where they found out the door locked and they kind of piled up against there and, and and that's where they died. So having a locked escape door was one of the contributing factors. Also, the fire escape that we talked about was rusty and it, was, um, it wasn't made for the weight of the number of people who were on it. And the heat also distorted some of the metal. So that was, and, and even if you got to the bottom of it, you, it didn't go all the way to the ground. So even if you got to the bottom of the fire escape, you'd still have to jump a couple of stories. The, the workspaces, of course, being cluttered was a, um, was a contributing factor. There's a story of a, of a young woman who said she got up on the tables and she was jumping from table to table trying to escape. And she saw a woman who was in her 40s or 50s who could not get up on the tables to do that. And she watched that woman catch fire before she got out. But it happened so quickly. And the explosive quality of the of the fibers in the air burning spread it just in, incredibly quickly. The fact that they had, for their waste materials, the fact that they didn't have metal fireproof containers but wicker baskets certainly gave more fuel to the fire, as did the oil that they put on the floor to keep the dust down. Of course, there were no sprinkler systems, but they did have a plan, and they had five buckets of water on that on that floor, and five buckets of water on the eighth floor, and on, above the tenth floor on the roof, they had a water tank, which I don't know if they ever actually released that or not, but this, they should have. There was also a flammable barrel of oil somewhere on the ninth floor. Probably and, machine oil. Yeah, that's right. And and boxes, the the boxes of shirtwaists that were finished were crowding the exits, so it was difficult to get out the doors. According to the law, there should have been a third escape stairwell, but there was not. They hadn't put it in the plan. Now the people who got to the roof, when they got up there, um, it was the owners and some of the workers from all the workers from the tenth floor, some of them from the ninth floor, and there was a professor in a building next door who was teaching a class and he looked out and he saw the people on the roof and he saw the smoke coming out. So he told his class to, uh, it was a college professor, so they were young, young men and women, so they opened up the windows and they came out and they found a ladder that a painter had left there. 
and they lowered it down to the people on the roof of the ash building and got them off of the roof. So that was an interesting coincidence, I thought, that somebody not only saw that there was something going on, but actually decided to do something about it. That doesn't always happen. Right. Yeah, ten tendency of bystanders a lot of times is just to walk away or to ignore what's going on and not really pitch in and help. There was a quote from one of the, um, I think it was one of the firefighters, that said, I'll never forget the thump of the body sitting beside them. That leaves an indelible mark on people. You know, they're, I'm sure that there were many who really went insane. And and the thing is, the people of New York, they were all in that area. Washington Square was very close by. And there was a lot of people out on a Saturday. It happened on a Saturday. They were out in the park enjoying the weather, enjoying the day, and came and saw all of these horrors as people jumped in flames from the building, you know, people panicking and, and jumping out of windows and landing on the sidewalk, and that had to have left an indelible mark on people. That's right. But after the fires, they took the, the remains to a morgue and they put them in uh, caskets. The relatives would come through and walk along all the caskets and try to identify their loved ones. And it was very difficult because some of them were burned, some of them were crushed. Um, I know some of them were identified by their jewelry that they had on. One woman was identified because her daughter saw her hair and said, that's mama, because I braided her hair like that this morning. The one man who went through 20 or 30 different uh, caskets looking and he could not identify his wife. He had no idea who she was. And she, you know, he was never able to find out which one was his, his wife, which that had to have been extremely heartbreaking for that man. That's right. And they, somebody actually brought in a dentist who looked in one woman's mouth and said, oh, yeah, that's my dental work. I, that, I know who that is. And that's how they identified her. But the, I can't imagine, because it's March, but still it was a pleasant day. I can't imagine having to walk through there looking for your loved one, how it looked, how it must have smelled. Oh, yes. Burns are horrible. They smell terrible. I used to work in a burn unit in Syracuse. Uh, for a while and just the smell of that place you couldn't get it out of your clothes you couldn't get it out of your sinuses it was just really a horrible smell mm -hmm. and so having to go through that building like that and try you know you're hoping you're hoping that it's all a dream and that your person isn't there and then maybe you can tell if it's them and maybe you don't know or you just never see whoever it was, the, the ninth floor of that building was completely gutted. Twisted metal and ash was all that was left. And so it's quite possible that some several of the missing people actually burned to where you couldn't even recognize them as human beings. Well, and I know that they, they said that the, the police and the firefighters who were going in afterwards to reclaim remains and to, to check the, the site that they had to, to rotate in and out because it was so overwhelming that even the most seasoned of them just couldn't handle it. They rotated in and out in periods of an hour, which is very short time right. for rotation on, in a situation like that. But mm -hmm. yeah, it was an overwhelming uh, situation. And people began to identify with that. Well, what if that had been my sister? What if that had been my mother who was killed in that situation? And the, the outpouring of support and help and compassion from the people of the city of New York and really all over the country when they heard about the tragedy was, was really amazing.
And people are like that. We see that with disasters that we go through now, different hurricanes and floods and things like that, where people are just willing to, you know, give of themselves and their resources to help people who've been through a tragedy. They are. And when they took the unidentified remains to be buried, there was a funeral procession and 400,000 people from New York City and the surrounding areas showed up to pay their respects. That's one out of every 10 people in the city of New York showed up at the funeral procession. And so it made a, it made a very large impression on the city and on the nation. There were a lot of people who were gathering money together to help the families of them to pay for the burials, people who died, but also to help support the people who had lost the income because they had lost that relative. Now, what about compensation from the owners or the, the uh, insurance that the owners carried on the building? Was there any compensation that way? In a book called Flesh and Blood So Cheap, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, that says that they the families were awarded $75 for each death. $75, and that's what wow. they were worth. But the but the gathered donated money made a big difference because it helped, for example, some in some of these factories, there was sisters working, there was mothers and sons working. And and so they one one gentleman lost every female in his family in that fire. Mm. And so the outpouring of donations is what really helped them because there was enough money to pay large sums of money to the survivors who didn't have anybody to support them anymore. And also they actually sent some of that money overseas to the people that the workers had been sending back to the old country, money for them to survive or to come over to America. So the, the insurance company and the owners, that was like, it was almost an insult, you know, to have well, th this person's only worth $75, so that's what you get. It, and there were people standing in line to take their jobs, right? That's right. But uh, they did actually take the owners to court because of the conditions in the factory. And what, it, what the decision finally came down to was whether or not they had knowledge that that other door was locked on the stairway. And the defense managed to convince folks that they did not know that the door was locked. They had no way of knowing if the door was locked because they personally didn't lock it. And they, so they were acquitted. And they got their insurance settlement for the factory losses and they disappeared. It's, it's sad that capitalism produces that kind of greed and that kind of exploitation. And, you know, you see it in other countries, you know, countries that um, we buy goods from where the conditions are just deplorable. And it should be within our, within our conscience and within our practice that we don't allow that kind of slavery to produce our goods. But unfortunately, people are greedy and they want the best deal for their money. And it, it comes at the price of a lot of people's lives. Well, but the, in this country now, there is a movement of people who, once they find out that there's a, like a sweatshop 
or mm -hmm. there's child labor involved in their in manufacturing their product, they'll get boycotted. They will. Yeah. People will stop buying their product until they change their ways, and yeah. I think that's good. And a few things did change after the Triangle Fire. Uh, in 1912, they decided to register all the factories, and that way they could tell, they could, they could divide the laws up between the factories and the tenements, and so they made a definition of what's a tenement, what's a factory. They uh, and and that stopped the sweatshop labor in the tenements because they weren't allowed to work there. Because there were children working there, the law also required a physical examination of children before they could get an employment certificate. The law demanded fire drills, automatic sprinklers, removal of rubbish, fireproof receptacles for waste, protection of gas jets, and, and prohibition of smoking in factories. And because of the situations in some of the places, chemical manufacturing plants or places where they use mercury and things like that, um, they also had to prohibit the eating in lunchrooms where those poisonous substances had been handled or processed. Women were prohibited from coming back to work within four weeks after they had a child. And the commissioner of labor became, prior to these laws, the fact, there was the factory owners and the, and the workers. And everything they did was like what happens in the factory stays in the factory. But after this, they had a commission of labor created who actually could regulate what happened in the factories and even against the owner's wishes if, if it was in the law. And I think, too, you know, they established adequate hot and cold water for uh, washing facilities for people. They uh, instituted some sprinkler systems and things that would, you know, protect in the event of a catastrophic fire or a catastrophic event. So it definitely started to shift towards helping the workers have better labor conditions and better um, working environments, which is huge because you're more productive. If you're not, you know, being forced and threatened and, and working in a sweatshop situation and maybe even being able to see a product, you know, be produced that you know is quality because you have the desire to produce a quality product rather than being forced to do it. So. Right. And basically, it was responsibilities for the owners and protection right. for the workers. They started out in the right direction, but they really didn't go as far as they should have until we had another fire. Right. And that's the Binghamton Factory Fire. It, it occurred on July 22nd, 1913 in a downtown building in Binghamton, New York, um, located at Wall Street. It was formerly a cigar factory. And it was destroyed by a fast-moving fire that was believed to have been uh, caused by smoking materials being disposed of into an inappropriate place down in the basement into some rags. There was an unsubstantiated rumor that an employee deliberately set the fire, and they raised this because they thought they had found out that this employee had set a fire at a previous place of employment. And it was an article that we found. It was kind of obscure, but it, it was definitely something that, that was raised as far as the um, possible cause of the fire. That's right. They made overalls for men. And this building was only... Was four, four stories four high. Four stories high. I'm sorry. Yeah. The building was yep. four stories high, which exempted it from some of the laws that had been passed after the Triangle Fire. Because if you had a story that was... If you had a factory that was over four stories, you had to have an enclosed stairwell. So 
so that you could escape it was a fire exit because this one was not five stories tall they didn't have to do that it wasn't required actually they received a waiver because it was four stories they had to have a four story in in a four story building but because it was already a built it was already built and it had been used as a manufacturing place before they waived that ruling which caused um, the caused the fatal fire i mean to the, the fatalities that came in that fire they employed 150 people most of them women and it was a hot july afternoon july 22nd they had been in the midst of a drought many of the women were stripped down to their undergarments and they were working in the in the heat 90 degree heat at one o'clock one of the employees claimed that it was unusually hot in the factory and an hour later later an employee reported the smell of smoke the regulation that stairways were managed to be built with partition walls of the fireproof material was waived uh, in the case of the Binghamton Clothing Factory, thus increasing the number of fatalities in the fire. So they practiced fire drills frequently after the Triangle Fire because that was one of the things that they instituted as law. Um, they would stand on the landing, the supervisors would stand on the landing and clap a cadence as they evacuated the building. But many of the employees were, were immigrants and a lot of them didn't understand the instructions. So at 2.30 when the fire alarm sounded, which was a long continuous tone, and it was unlike the intermittent tones that the fire drills had, many people were confused and didn't understand that it was a fire, that that was what it was. They thought it was just another fire drill. Reed Freeman and his wife, the owners of the factory, they sounded the alarm and they attempted to douse the flames with buckets of water but they were no match for the fast-moving fire. They escaped with the survivors from the first and second floor. One girl was sitting upstairs on the fourth floor and she was sewing and she was in her, her undergarments because it was a very hot day, hair down, and a lady came in and said there was a fire and warned that it was really a fire and that the alarm was, was real. And she said, she was quoted as saying, I'm not going out there in my underwear for men to see. And so her saying that it must have influenced some other women to stay where they were instead of escaping the fire, and they, they perished because of it. Out of modesty. Out of modesty, yeah. And, you know, I understand that's, that's, a, a, that's a thought, but at the same time, if it's your life or that, then... And the thing is, as the fire progressed, it was no longer an issue. <laughs> The high wind and the drought-like conditions and the extra ventilation caused by the open windows and the doors that were open, it just, it just up the stairwell, it just created this incredible chimney-like effect. And the smoke and flames accelerated very quickly up through the, the building. The greatest loss of life was on the top third and fourth floors because they were inside and they were trapped. 31-year-old Nellie Connor, she was affectionately called mom by the girls. She was like, you know, the, the mother was found dead standing on one of the landings of the collapsed stairway. She was found dead on the landing. She died after apparently fulfilling her duty of clapping cadence for the girls because that was her responsibility was to stand on the stairway and to, to uh, clap. But many girls were talked about the fact that the reason that they were out of the building is because she did what she did. She also ran took people out of the building, ran back in, took some more people out of the building. Finally, she ran back in again and never came out. Well, that was like Sidney Dimmick, who was a 13 or 16-year-old supervisor. He carried two women out, and then he went back into the building to bring more women out, and he was never seen. And both of those were honored 
posthumously for their heroic efforts. The Binghamton Fire Company was across town at the time of the fire. They were about five or seven minutes delayed from arriving at the fire. And by the time they arrived, the fire was so intense that they couldn't help any of the people that were trapped in the building. They had a lack of adequate water pressure because of the drought, and the attempts to extinguish the fire were hindered by that. The fire escapes were consumed in flames. They said people were climbing out of the windows onto the fire escapes, and the flames were just all around them. And within 20 minutes, the structure was consumed. And by 4 o'clock, the structure had, was completely collapsed and destroyed. Yeah, fit, most all those people that died, died within 15 minutes. Right. And it says that approximately 12 girls were seen running in their undergarments with their braids trailing down their backs in flames. They were running out of the building. In their panic and their agony, they jumped into the Shenango River to put out the fire. Some jumped from windows only to perish from the falls, and many were driven insane by the horror of the event. Those who actually saw it happening were just totally, you know, just lost their minds because of the, the horror. And now we'd call that post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. And, and we do try to treat people that have that. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, that's that's an overwhelming sight to, that you will never forget and will come back to haunt you in your dreams mm -hmm. and make you not want to work in that situation again. Right. And the thing is, the death toll from that fire was disputed. I mean, we've done a lot of research on the, the death toll, and there was an estimate that 31, there were 31 total deaths. There were 21 people who were unidentified, and they were identified by just counting the bones left, their pelvic bones left from the fire. They were interred at a donated sp uh, plot on the Spring Forest Cemetery where there's a beautiful memorial. We went up and saw it, and there'll be some pictures posted on the website. Uh, several of the surrounding communities came to mourn them, and the memorial service was held. Reports from the local newspaper stated that there were a total of 17 people who were uninjured from the fire. Many of them fled the scene. There was a lot of people who were on vacation. Some of them were thought to be in the building and found out later that they were not. But they, um, they said that there were only 17 who were uninjured. 22 were hospitalized, many of them with life-threatening burns and injuries, which may have perished after the fact. There were eight who were cared for in private homes. There was an estimate as high as 40 to 50 deaths, but it has been difficult to verify it. In the years to follow the broken-hearted owner of the factory, Reed Freeman, cared for the families of the victims and those injured in the fire. It was a total loss, incurring $100,000 in damage. Fire Lieutenant Harding, who was the, uh, later on, he spoke of this. He stated that 60 of 100 the persons in the factory at the time of the fire were able to escape. He was a descendant of the heroine Nellie Connor. And that's, again, it's hard to nail down an actual number and with that kind of a fast-moving, devastating fire, there may have been remains that weren't identified, so it could have been higher. Well, pelvic bones are, are very large, and so they're easier to pull out of the ashes. But when someone is completely cremated like that, it's quite possible that there were people that, in there that were never identified. Um, we did the math, and we came up with all kinds of numbers. Now, the total people who were working there, do you remember what that was? 111 to 125. They weren't, that was the... They the ballpark, sure, right? Mm -hmm. um, the bookkeeper had one figure, and 
then mm-hmm. some other folks had other figures. And we, we tried to add up those, the ones that died, the ones that were injured. And we came up with anywhere from 30 to 50, even I think almost 60 deaths. Yeah, some of it, it was very, very hard to really nail it down. But the fact is, regardless of how many, those deaths were were uncalled for. You know, it was one of those situations where there could have been a lot of different things done to prevent that. And in the aftermath of that and the Triangle Fire, um, they, they, they saw that there was a lack of enforcement. They had put measures in place, but they were not being enforced. And so they had a, to pass even more legislation. Well, and this, this owner appeared to be in compliance with most of, of the regulations as well, and they still, have, they still right. had a huge fire. Right. And the thing is that the stairwell, that was, you know, the, the one issue that because it was waived, it wasn't really his fault. But at the same time, if he really had thought about it, maybe he would have done things differently. But, you know, it it was a time when, you know, things were hard, you know, the people financially were struggling and maybe it just wasn't within his ability to do that. Well, so. and it was a new idea that factory owners should protect their workers and obviously he cared about his unlike the triangle fire he cared about his workers because he worked with them even after the even after the fire happened but um you know he uh, it appears that he complied to the letter of the law pretty Mm -hmm. i mean pretty much can't be absolutely sure Mm -hmm. the smoking in the factories thing somebody they think that it may have been a cigarette that was thrown into some trash in the basement or somewhere but yeah, he's the, you know, if the laws aren't there, then a lot of times mm-hmm. you don't even think about it. Right. Well, anyways, the National Fire Prevention Association uh, then began to introduce some even more stringent laws and changes. The 19th, 1916 provision for fireproof outside stairways and fire exits was instituted. In 1918, there were several laws instituted to safeguard factory workers the regulation of the stairway size and construction for fire escapes. So they had to reinforce and and upgrade those. Codes for the fire drills at different levels of occupancy. If there was a higher level of occupancy during the day or on the night shift, maybe a lower level of occupancy, but they had to do drills on every shift and every level of occupancy, which helped for them to get people out. The construction arrangements were made when they constructed a building and submitted a plan, they had to have fire exits in the plan. That was something that was required when they did when they submitted plans. Fire suppression and sprinkler systems, and then an organized disaster plan, a drill where they would know how to react in any of those given situations. And I know there was a lot more introduced after 1913. I'll let you share those. Well, some of, yeah, it's interesting because some of these address the actual factory, but some of them addressed the workers. Uh, One of the things that happened in 1913 was that the Labor Department was reorganized and they created an industrial board that would oversee factories, and only factories. And they actually had penalties for violations of those laws, fines and imprisonment. Um, We talked about the fireproof receptacles and the alarm systems. Uh, one of the things that there was that they did pass was that they limited the number of occupants in any room, and you can still see that. You go into a restaurant and you'll see occupancy 200, 
or you go in, when you walk into an elevator, it tells you occupancy, either how many or a weight. So they did have to, they couldn't cram people in so tightly that they couldn't get out. Um, they changed the number of hours that women could work. They also changed the number of hours that children could work. They passed a compulsory education law so that children would go to school. And they also prohibited children under 14 to work in occupations where they had to handle equipment, like canneries and things like that. Because, and then I know still in, in the day that we are, when we go to camp, kids under 16 can't use a knife in the kitchen if they're working in the kitchen. And so those protections are for them to be able to get through their teenage years, hopefully unscathed. <laughs> yeah, and some of the little things that they, that they pass... You know, instead of standing up all day, they just seats for people to sit in, for women to sit in. The rooms had to be cleaned. You know, the buildings had to be cleaned. The rooms had to be large enough for the for the activities that were taking place. They had to have washrooms and dressing rooms and water closets. Women in mercantile establishments were limited to 54 hours a week through the entire state of New York. And for children between 14 and 16, the hours were reduced from 54 hours a week to 48 hours a week. And they couldn't work more than eight hours in one day or after six o'clock in the evening. So the, the fires not only helped with the actual physical working conditions, but it also helped with the treatment of the workers themselves. Mm -hmm. Which is really, I mean, if someone's producing a benefit to you by working for you and producing a product that you're making money off of, you should treat that person well because they're your income. That's right. <laughs> if you start from scratch and you're the only person who ever works at your company, then you are a self-made man. But if you start a company and you have workers that help you build that company, they're doing the work for you, you know, it's you owe them at least the respect of acknowledging the fact that they helped you. You didn't do it on your own. You had to hire workers, and they did their best job for you. Right. And so I think, you know, coming away from these disasters, there definitely was a great deal of benefit derived from it because there were a lot of laws instituted, but the cost in human lives for those things to happen was un was unfair and unrealistic. It should never have taken that much for them to do the things that were right. That's true, but it always does. It, Big change never comes unless there is a big disastrous occurrence that will force the public to force whoever to do to make those changes. Yeah. Well, I think we've done pretty well discussing these fires and the outcome from uh, the legal outcomes from them. And uh, it's been an interesting to study it. Kind of sad seeing the amount of suffering that went on, not only in the, the people who were killed, but also their families. But it is part of life, unfortunately. So Yes, but, it is. So let's just hope that in the future, maybe we can create a more benevolent work environment for people and to where owners are responsible for the things that happen in their factories and, and that they are, are made to take responsibility for those things. All right. Well, I think we've got that pretty well wrapped up. Thank you for listening to Disaster Tales. 
We've enjoyed uh, working on this project, and we look forward to our next one. Yay! Yes, our next one. We're trying to decide whether we should be doing an earthquake or a dam failure. And so if you have, if you have a preference, then go ahead and get on our website and send us a message. Or you can send us an email at, you can send me an email at kate at disastertales.com. You can send Barb an email at barb at disastertales.com. And we'll really be happy to hear your suggestions because we want to know what you want to know. Today's disaster tip comes from our experiences with Hurricane Ike in Texas. Prior to the storm's arrival, evacuation orders were issued for people whose homes were in harm's way. Many people did leave, but some decided to stay, and others did not have the resources to travel to safer areas. If your home is under an evacuation order, either voluntary or mandatory, please go to safety. Hurricanes are notoriously unpredictable and can strengthen and change speeds before they make landfall. Nothing is more important than you and your family, so if you're advised to evacuate, please do. You can get through losing your possessions, but you should never risk the lives of yourself or your loved ones.